Kia koutou. Welcome to this episode of the Thinking Matters podcast. It's been great over the last few weeks to hear how many of you are enjoying these sessions. It's always special for us when we have one of our team join us for a podcast and today we have Bruce Fraser, Thinking Matters Regional Director for Canterbury and our Director of Leadership Development. Bruce was an incredible support to us during our leadership change in 2021 and is always a very calm and thoughtful person to discuss ministry issues with. He has blessed us all as a team and I know he'll bless you as you listen to this important podcast on the topic of Christians and doubt. Bruce lives in Christchurch with his gorgeous wife Lee and their awesome boys Liam and Julian. Welcome along Bruce, it's great to have you on our podcast finally, we've really been trying to get you you here with us, um, I've done an introduction for you. Um, we just want to get to know you actually, so can you tell our audience a little bit about your who you are, your family and um, what you do? Yeah, thanks Michelle, it is really good to be here, I'm excited to finally be on here as well. And uh, yeah, just a little bit about myself. You can probably already tell that I am American, but I'm not in America. I live here in Christchurch. Um, I am married to my Kiwi wife, Lee, and we have two boys, Liam and Julian, who are almost 10 and almost eight, as they keep reminding us, because they are very close. Um, yeah, we've been here, living here for the last um, 10, 11 years now, after leaving the mission field in Kenya, where my wife was doing some support for language translation and I was doing some IT support work for the people over there in Kenya. Uh, I work in software development as my paid work and then of course I do as you know they work here with Thinking Matters in Christchurch, meeting with a lot of pastors, meeting with churches, finding venues for us to run events, running the monthly Forge event and yeah just just encouraging people to to keep at whatever that, that is going to strengthen their churches, supporting individuals who I find who have a passion for it, um, apologetics, and just, yeah, trying to help them grow in the journey. Because it's a long, long journey that I've been on in this, and I feel a lot more comfortable now than I did in the early days. Yes, yeah. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much. What we like to do as well is to learn um, about or to hear about um, a person's faith journey. So we'd really love to, you to share with us how you came to Christ and um, maybe some of the steps that, that led to that happening. Yeah, well, I came to Christ as a very young child. I grew up in church. Uh, in fact, my mother tells me I was there every day from before I was born right on through. Um it was a, how to characterize it nicely. It was a good church, it was, um, it, but it was very traditional and a very generally conservative. Um, not a lot of emotional exuberance or anything like that. So sometimes it felt like, you know, a little bit like funeral services. But anyways, this is the environment that I, that I grew up in. And I, I decided to put my trust in Jesus at around the age of um, eight or nine and uh, of course, it's been a journey ever since then, learning what that actually means, because, of course, as an eight or nine-year-old, you, you understand very little. And, I, you know, I used to think, uh, gosh, it's really sad that I don't have a, an amazing conversion story to share. And then one day it dawned on me that how ridiculous that is to actually wish I had had a conversion story, because what else would that imply if I'd had an amazing conversion story? It might have implied I had a crappy childhood or something devastating happened to me or, you know, recovering an addict or life on the streets. Who knows what it would have involved if I'd had that kind of story. But instead, I just have a story of amazing faithfulness of parents who 
demonstrated to me what it's like to serve other people, like not just on Sundays, but throughout the week. They're very servant-minded people. Yeah. And, um, and to, to just embrace this idea that actually the best gift I can leave to my children is this knowledge of God and Jesus and who he is, not who other people say he is, but who he says he is as best as we can understand it. Yeah. And so, yeah, there was a time, uh, if we want to talk about more, we can, but there was a time where I kind of, uh, as a um, early 20-year-old, began to kind of wrestle through that myself. And I think, you know, that can come out later as we talk as well. But I think many people have to go through some point in time where they have to own it for themselves if they've grown up in church. You can only go so long of going and doing what your parents say you should be doing before you have to decide, well, hang on, do I actually believe this? And why do I believe it? And are the reasons for which I believe it good enough? And should they be? And, you know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, I had to go through a number of years of just kind of searching out the answers because I wasn't finding them in the church circles that I was a part of at that time. And so it took a while looking outside of that of the church circles that I was in and getting connected to some really interesting people over the years. Yeah. It's, a, it's, I always find that when a person has grown up in the church and they've kept their faith, that it's actually a really powerful testimony, particularly living in the world that we live in. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, when you're, when you're talking to somebody who doesn't believe, they'll say, Oh, that's just what you were raised with. Of course, mm. that's what you believe. And I'm like, yeah, but for me, that might be true, but there are many, many millions of other people who've converted, so that, that alone isn't an explainer. And I had to go through that process of reconverting or redeciding if this is what I actually believed. And it was a very different approach for me than perhaps it was for my parents who had a very different approach to faith. Yeah. Um, I'm much more of the, the question asker, the challenger, the um, I want to know why. Why, 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 why? I never stopped asking that question as I, as I grew up. Yeah. So when was it that you actually found out about apologetics? Was that quite early on in your journey? I had heard of it early on. And as I said, there were people in my church who when I'd asked these uncomfortable questions about God and science and um, origins and things like that, they really didn't know how to answer me. And they would just kind of point me to the best that they knew of. So I was aware that there was some stuff out there, but I really wasn't able to find uh, a lot of good content at that time. Maybe I wasn't looking in the right places. I just didn't know where to look. But that all changed when the, um, the church I was going to in my 20s, um, I got, uh, we had a guest speaker come and speak uh, after church to us about reasons that you can believe that the New Testament is reliable and true. I thought, well, that's an interesting topic. I really do want to know why should I believe? Why can I believe this? And that guest speaker was uh, Mike Lycona, Dr. Mike Lycona, who's you know written a few books on now on the resurrection. But back then, he was still just getting really rolling in his ministry, and uh, so I I had a long chat with him after the, the, his talk was over, and I'm like, I'm just really fascinated by all this stuff, and I really love to learn more. Where can I find more? And he's like, You seem like the kind of guy who could really benefit from joining my group. And uh, so he invited me into this this group of 
people that he got together with. Most of them were um, university students at that time. Um, but there were a number of other people like myself and a few even older people at the time who were part of that group that just really wanted to dig hard into the, um, the questions that apologetics tries to deal with. Mm -hmm. And I just found that so profoundly transformative of my whole um, faith, because I believe that up until that time, my, my faith had remained fairly superficial, because in my mind, I was still playing out that, is it really true? And if it is, should I be living any differently? Because I'm kind of comfortable with the way I'm living now. Mm. Yeah. But as I become more firmly grounded in the evidence and the belief that it really was true, then that caused me to take more seriously the, um, the other things that the church was trying to teach me about the ways to live. And uh, yeah, yeah. So I've heard it was a, I've heard a little bit about um, that group that you were in, <laughs> and I've yeah. often wondered, and I've never asked this of you. Um, well, you can obviously share because there'll, there'll be some diehard apologists, probably you know apologetics fans living, um, listening to this um, podcast as well. Um, you can share who was in that group, but I've often wondered what your conversations were like, and was there debate amongst you because you had some very um, quite. Um, eloquent, for want of a better word, um, people in that group. And I was just wondering what the dynamic was like. Well, it was, yeah, it was a fascinating group. I mean, the first there was Mike. And I think Mike was really helpful in setting me on the right trajectory because he's got such a gentle, uh, humble spirit about him that when he, when he talks, he doesn't come across as arrogant. And he often is trying to put himself in the, the perspective of the person that he's talking to or, or the group that he's talking to. And I just found that it wasn't just his knowledge, but also his mannerisms were really profoundly transformative for me. But, but other people who were in that group were also quite interesting. Uh, I first got to meet a, a young guy named David Wood. And um, David Wood is now known to some people for his ministry, um, answering Islam and X-17 um, X apologetics. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and David had an entirely different approach. Now, if you know anything about David's backstory, David is a self-confessed psychopath. He has been medically diagnosed. He told his story of how he had um, gone to prison for trying to kill his father. He spent five years in prison. And in prison, he met Jesus um, after a guy was discussing with him all this evidence. And he, he said, one of the things he said to me that really stuck with me was, he said, this guy kept coming to me with arguments and... Um, and I couldn't beat him and I couldn't understand it because I knew it wasn't because he was smarter than me. Uh, so it had to be because it was true. And so he, he became a Christian there um, on the floor in a prison. And then he joined our group after he'd come out of prison and he started studying philosophy at a secular university. And then it was there that he met and became best friends with Nabil Qureshi, who a few more people are familiar with. Because, of course, Nabil Qureshi had a pretty profound ministry. But at the time I first met him, he was a apologist for Islam. And he still was, he was coming here to our group initially to challenge us and to show us where we were wrong in our understanding. And um, I got to watch this dynamic play out for a number of years with David and Mike did most of the uh, kind of like responding to arguments. But there was a whole group of us who would engage in this. Um, process of dissecting arguments and and so it was very lively we would challenge each other and especially once we had some of those people who didn't believe in christianity you know if you've ever been a part of a group that was purely christians engaged in apologetics and tried to have a debate mm 
<laughs> it's pretty weak. Yes. Uh, you often find that the arguments you put up are not very good and they're not very compelling and you give up too easily. But when you've got people there who genuinely believe it, you get a much, much more interesting dynamic going on. And that was so helpful to me. Yes. And especially to see how they continue to wrestle with the questions with him and they didn't put him down and they, well, David's a bit mocking. And <laughs> if you know anything about David's personality, he can mock people at times. And I thought initially that's got to be the worst thing you could do as an approach. But when I talked to Nabil, I talked to some of the other friends who were coming along. Um, they found that really helpful because it forced them to kind of confront their own beliefs and their own attitudes. Um, so those two were there. Nabil watched that three-year journey from Islam to Christianity. And I even got to be there for his baptism, which was really amazing. And that was cool. And it was a couple of years later through that same group of guys, like Nabil and David went to um, Biola to study. And there they met and became friends with Mary Jo Sharp. And then I got to meet her through supporting them in some of the talks and debates that they were now doing with Muslims and with, with atheists and others like that. Excellent. So yeah, it was just, it was huge for me. I can't imagine anything more uh, transformative for my journey, like changing the trajectory of my journey than just being able to be there and be present as we discussed all these hard questions and take them seriously, dive into them. Yeah, I've listened to a few of their testimonies testimonies as well and they all speak well of that particular group and the impact that it had in those formative years of apologetics so that's yeah really yeah good. i think it was profound for all of us great so we in your journey um, of faith obviously we're going to be talking a little bit about christians in doubt where was the time that you know obviously that, that may have been something that you've struggled with in your past as well yeah, I think it's, there's always been an element of it that was there. Because like I said, from the very early days, um, well, I had an interest in science. And so I studied astronomy and I was learning a lot there. And I was coming with some questions and they weren't really being responded to. And I would have some people tell me, not all, everybody, but some would tell me, well, you just got to believe. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? Am I supposed to believe in spite of the evidence over here that says something different? Am I supposed to somehow figure out how they fit together? Help me out here. Um, so I think that doubt began to arise because I couldn't see any good answers. And actually, in hindsight, I think it's surprising to me that I did actually hang on to faith through that period of time. Um, there was just a part of my brain that was, there was two separate parts and there's my church brain and my world brain, and they weren't interacting too much. Um, and that kind of got me through a period until I got to this group with Mike, and I could then start to unify those um, and make a whole make sense out of the mm. what I understand of the overlap of science and apologetics. And so, yeah, that I think I also experienced a lot of doubt when, as I said, I began to ask those hard questions about do I really believe this myself? Is it really true? And that's where, you know, I needed an more answers to those questions. Yeah. Um, and when you're not finding answers or you think there aren't any, man, that's really devastating emotionally. You just kind of feel like, oh, maybe there aren't any good answers out there. Um, and yeah, that, that's something we can 
dive into a bit more too. Yeah. That emotional we, side of it is really important. We're kind of seeing that happen a little bit um, with some of the more high profile, say, musicians, Christian musicians who are kind of deconstructing because they feel like the, the questions aren't being answered. And so they are filled with doubt. But it makes you wonder with the amount of apologetics ministries out there that actually are answering the questions, how, where's the disconnect between these people that have prof, high profile sort of worship um, bands and they lead worship and, and things like that, but they're not actually yeah, connected yeah. into um, the discipleship side, which I think is where apologetics kind of sits, doesn't it? I think so, but yeah. I think for most people in their understanding of discipleship, they don't necessarily get that connection. Mm -hmm. It's about growing in our spiritual disciplines and our practices. It's about reading our Bible and praying and lots of other um, spiritual practices, which are all really good. But in my experience, the vast majority of people don't get any exposure to the arguments for why they should believe what they believe, certainly very rarely as children and young adults growing up in church. Um, and so unless someone has pointed them to these resources out there, they often don't even think to look for them. They're just hearing a steady diet of this from my church is what I should believe, and this from the world is what they believe to be true about the world. Right. And if the church hasn't prepared somebody for that, what are they supposed to do? <laughs> Reminds me of a meme I saw, you know. Um, but it was a really interesting one. But it was Babylon B. Uh, one of their articles had it, just the headline was church praise over teen being sent off to university that she would be able to withstand the questions that they'd never trained her to answer. I saw that one. It was very good. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's true. Unfortunately, it really is true. It is. Yeah. So that's when I see most people actually who are leaving faith leave, lose it in, at university because they are challenged. Yeah. And if they haven't been prepared, then they won't think to look for those resources. They won't know where to look. Yeah. And so, so when it comes to doubt, do you think there's like a stigma associated with it? Like I think about the verse in James 1, 5 to 8, where it talks about, you know, he, if you lack wisdom, let, let him ask. He, sorry, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask, of, ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a, a like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I sort of wonder if people sort of see that verse and it's almost like if you doubt, there's something really wrong with you. Yeah, and I think it has been interpreted exactly that way um, uh, for many people. Mm -hmm. And I, I was fortunate that my church didn't portray it as something uh, that you're you're a bad person for doubting, but more just didn't have the resources to answer it. But I have heard stories of other people tell stories of uh, you know a young teenage girl who started to express her doubts to her family, and they were so so just shattered by it that eventually they kicked her out of the house for having doubt. Oh my goodness! And I'm just like, wow. There are, so there are people who who don't know how to walk somebody through the doubts. They, they just assume that if I take that verse literally as best as I can, mm. then I should never have any doubts. And, you know, and I've seen a number of people who either appear to never have doubts or at least, uh, or may actually genuinely never have doubts. I'm a little bit doubtful about yeah, I that. Yeah, th I think it's human nature <laughs> to have doubts because that gets us questioning and seeking God more. 
Yeah, but there are people who will put up a front that, that makes you think that they don't. Mm. And so what's going on there? How are they actually handling those doubts when they do arise inside themselves? Is it just yeah. pray it away or, or what? Yeah. Um, and yeah, so. I guess it's how you define the doubt as well. Because um, that verse, you know, obviously it's quite, um, it's specific, but it's not saying, it's not speaking about the, everything in a person's life. And there are certain stages in our journey where we do start to question things. And I think, do you think the church handles that generally very well? Or do you th have you seen improvements over the years? Or do you think this is something that we really need to talk about a lot more? Well, I've seen, you know, and especially over the last few years, I've had a lot more chances to interact with pastors. And I, and I see there's not too many pastors out there who wouldn't acknowledge that there's a need for this. Mm. And they don't have the bandwidth to do it because they've got so much going on in their churches. And um, so, yeah, they, they, they see the need, but how do they then um, connect the people who need those questions to, to, the, um, to the people who can help them wrestle through them? Uh, just just on that James passage, though, mm. I'm pretty sure you're probably reading from the NIV version. Mm, I think it, or oh, one, maybe I was. I didn't related check, to it. Yeah, I usually do ESV, but I did get it off the internet, so it might have defaulted to NIV. It could be ESV as well. I don't know what, exactly what they says, but that's a that is has been a historical translation. But the New Living Translation, which you can argue about the merits of various <laughs> translations, but yeah. but the New Living Translation, which I think doesn't hold so much to traditional interpretations as it does to trying to be faithful interpretations, mm -hmm. uh, actually that verse reads very differently there. It, okay. it, it talks about um, having a single-minded trust in, in God and not wavering. It uses the word waver instead of doubt. And then it talks about having divided loyalties or divided mind is, is causing that kind of tossing about. And so uh, when, if you were to read that in English, of course, I'm not a Greek expert, so I don't know what the rest, best translation is there. Yeah. But I, I think it just... Um, there and, and of course, when they say with any Bible verse, you have to read it in its entire yes. context. Is that the only place where doubt is spoken to in the whole of the Bible? No, it's just one of the more obvious. Let's go to the single verse we can, you know, provide this verse to show you why you shouldn't doubt. Yeah. But if you don't take that in the context of the whole rest of the Bible, then and that's, can come that's up a with whole a other podcast, isn't it? That's right. That's right. <laughs> the way we the way we read our Bibles and the way we we pick little bits out and make a whole doctrine out of it. So that, that's mm -hmm. always dangerous territory. But I did, yeah, yeah. I, I do wonder that that verse has had an effect on people in the way that they have actually interpreted it, or it's been you know presented to them. It's almost like a. Um, yeah, it's like saying that you're you're really lacking in faith. So with regard to doubt, um, is it a modern concept or is that something that's been around since time began? Oh gosh, since time began, yeah. I think obviously, uh, because we don't know everything about the world, and we're always being challenged with new information, and uh, that new information oft sometimes confronts our preconceived view of the world. And so in light of that, we have to do something with that information and our worldview. Either we've got to ignore the information or we've got to figure out how it fits mm -hmm. into our worldview. Or we can maybe find a counter argument that shows that that information might not be all that it purports to be in the beginning. Which are all reason, you know, there's, there's some reasonable approaches to what to do with it, but to just to ignore it because it doesn't fit, that's something that psychologists call confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. 
that people can be presented with a fair amount of evidence uh, for and against. But in general, the only part of that information that they walk away with afterward is the things that reinforced what they already believed. And even psychologists who study confirmation bias will acknowledge that they are subject to confirmation bias, despite having all this understanding that it is an inbuilt way that we work because we do need the ability sometimes to shortcut decisions and to shortcut our thinking because we don't have the cognitive capacity to process all the information in the world and, and make it make sense out of it. Yeah, that's very true. So we need some shortcuts there. Yeah. Yeah. So thinking of doubt, what are some of the things that young people or old people, anyone basically that's a Christian, that suddenly finds themselves really questioning, hey, is this real? Is this what I'm believing and what I'm following and, and what I'm giving my life for? Is this actually true? What is some of the advice that you give to people who are questioning? Well, one of the things that I've learned uh, over the years is to ask, is to try to discern what kind of doubt it really is. Mm. Um, and through the journey of knowing Mike Lycona and his mentor was actually Dr. Gary Habermas. And so we got to meet Dr. Gary Habermas a few times when he came down um, to, to visit with Mike. And we had some great conversations, but often those conversations turned to the area of doubt. And um, he's written a book. It was written back in 1990, so I'm sure there's... Uh, actually, I found out that it's available for free online. You can just search Gary Habermas Doubt, and it's on his own website, so it's not a pirated version um, uh, about how you engage with doubt. And so he talks about... In his conception, he has three different kinds of doubt. I'm most comfortable with an understanding of what I call intellectual, or he calls factual doubt. And the other, I would say, is emotional doubt. And intellectual doubt is what we think is most common. It's, here's a question I don't know to the answer to, and it chain, if it's, you know, this information that's been presented is true, well, it could very well fundamentally alter my worldview. And that can lead to some of those kind of um, wrestling with that, is it really true? And when somebody at university says, oh, the Bible is just a bunch, it's just been passed down and translation of a translation of a translation of a, tra you know, and that it's been corrupted over the years. And we can see that plenty of evidence of the corruption all over the place. Um, if you don't know how to respond to that, well, it's, if it's factually true, it does present a real problem. And the trouble comes for most of us is we believe, because many of us like to think of ourselves as rational beings, that the majority of our issues are rationally grounded in facts. But Gary Habermas and others who looked into this, and I see there's not a lot of solid science that I can, that I can point to on this, but this is kind of estimate that about 80% of the doubt that they encounter and wrestle with is actually emotional doubt. Right. And... I think a really helpful diagnostic question when you get, uh, when you're talking to someone else, perhaps, and engaging with this question is, um, why is the answer to that question so important to me? It's probably useful to ask yourself that as well when you're wrestling with something. Why is the answer to that so important to me? So if, for example, I'm wrestling with the question of why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? Well, that's a big philosophical question that you could spend a lifetime researching. Why does the answer to that matter? Well, it's because I suffered growing up, um, perhaps when somebody 
uh, left who is supposed to be unconditionally loved me, or I suffered abuse, or I watched someone go through a horrible cancer and wither away and die, and I can't believe that a good God would allow any of that. You know, so there is there's something emotional that happened in the beginning that actually was the catalyst for some of these doubts. And just recognizing that there is a distinctly emotional component and being able to discern what do I, what do, I do with that? I really like, uh, I think you were around for when Mary Jo Sharp came. Um, she's brilliant. I love her. Uh, one of the questions she, she pointed out that you could ask when someone is expressing to you, they're kind of wrestling with this big problem of the problem of pain and evil and suffering in the world is to ask, do you really need answers right now? Mm. Or, or do you just need a hug? Yeah. Because, you know, if you're dealing with something really profound, it, it has emotional resonance and the emotion, the intellectual arguments, it's really hard for them to overcome that strong intellectual feeling that, that, that sits in when it's connected to a big event like that. Yes. I loved it when she said that that's just, that's human nature. You know, sometimes that's what you need, a hug more than information. Yeah, but that's what we're guilty of as apologists, isn't it? Yes. Too often we want to go to the information and skip right over that step. Yeah. And that's why it's so so profoundly important that we hear from this diversity of voices because, honestly, she's the first apologist I've ever heard talk about the problem of evil that way. Yeah. Um, and I was like, whoop, yes, absolutely. That's why we need more women apologists. We're absolutely. Bringing another angle. <laughs> yes. Oh, we've been encouraging that for years yes. and years. And we have to do some diagnostics on why that they're not drawn to this as strongly. I think they are beginning, women are beginning to become more involved because obviously, particularly in the church, um, you know, their kids are growing up, you know, they're seeing young people leave the faith so early, you know, as soon as they go to university and they start having to face some of these questions and they don't have the answers. So a lot of parents, a lot of mums particularly, yeah. are actually starting to say, actually, I need to know what these answers are. So I've, I've spoken to a couple of women um, this, just this week who are very much into apologetics. And so we, we're sort of trying to find ways that we can incorporate them into the ministry as well. So it's quite Yeah, exciting. we certainly want to interpret the, encourage that as yeah. much as possible. Yeah. Uh, no, that's very true. Yeah. So, so what? What I actually wanted to say there was another. I can't remember who said it, but someone said it's really important when you do have doubts to doubt your doubts, not yes. just to ride with it. Because what is the consequence if you have doubts and you just don't even bother to find out the answers to those questions? Yeah, it's a common thing that I've seen. Like, I've taken some friends along with me on the journey and started to introduce them to apologetics. And I find that for them, too, that they first hear an intellectual argument and they don't hear a good response to it. They think, oh, that's the end. You know, they're, they're, my faith is done because I just, there's no answer to this. It's such a compelling argument that was presented that they're shattered. And they believe, and I think this is true of all of us, and I'm sure it was through me early on too, that because I don't know the answer, there isn't one. Yes. That nobody else has uh, wrestled with this question or perhaps spent a lifetime studying this question and put together resources on what they've discovered through the process. And so, yeah, if you don't doubt your doubts, how will you ever arrive at reality? Mm. Uh, what What is true? You know, we, um, I think it was C.S. Lewis or perhaps someone connected to, the, to him that said, you know, we want to follow where the evidence leads. 
Um, we want to see what evidence is actually true and then try to make sense of it. And we don't have a perfect understanding of the world, and but science can help us uncover that. And we don't have a perfect understanding of God. And so good theological um, study and engagement with people from diverse theological perspectives can help sharpen us in, in that thinking. And um, yeah, and I found like one of the most transformative things about the apologetics was, as I said, getting the people in there who genuinely disagree. And some of them, many of them are still, you know, diehard atheist or, um, yeah, or whatever faith they came to it with, they still hold. But at the very least, they have a bit more of a, done some wrestling with why do I believe what I believe myself? And, and for many of them, what I'm trying to, what I'm hoping to convey to them is at least a sense that belief in Christianity is not irrational. Mm -hmm. It's not, um, it's not fairy tale or wishful thinking. It's, it's genuinely trustworthy and believable because there are good reasons for believing what we believe. Not everything we believe is provable through arguments and apologetics, but that's where faith, which I would better define as trust comes in, you know, to take what we do know as the foundation and use that to build trust for the things that we don't know. Yeah, no, that's very good. Because I remember when I first um, started hearing about apologetics and I was really excited about it and I, I thought, oh, I'll have a look at some of the atheist websites to see what what they're saying on these issues and oh I just remember every time I'd go in there and my heart would just sink because it just made me feel like oh my goodness they sound so convincing it totally sounds correct but as the years have gone on and I've learned more it's become less of an issue I can go in there and and just you can see the irrational sort of side of things a lot more yeah yeah and and it <laughs> We can find whatever we were looking for. That's true. Uh, so if we're looking for proof that it's wrong, that Christianity is wrong and uh, not worth believing in, we can find that because we can listen to a lot of those atheists free of any critique and say, that's very compelling. And the same with the Christian arguments. Actually, there's some really lousy Christian arguments I've heard trotted out over the years uh, that are just not true and we should stop using them. <laughs> And thankfully, you know, we've got a bit more information out there with the, with the internet. We've got so much more access to, to be able to research the origins of some of these beliefs and where they arose. Yeah. And yeah, no, so being able to work through those. Thanks, Bruce. So where do we first see doubt arise in the Bible or, you know, is it scattered throughout the whole, um, all the books? Uh, yes, it's definitely scattered throughout, uh, but I think when we first see it is that episode in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve are confronted by the serpent, and um, the serpent's not lying, he's using questions to plant doubt. When he says, did God really say, he just twist it just a little bit, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. He twists it just enough that it, it's close to what God said, but not exactly what God said. Did God really say you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? And of course, she clarifies that no, he said this tree we must not eat from. And he's like, oh, well, let me tell you about why. So he's in this process of planting doubts. Like he's not, you know, overcoming her with, with arguments at this point. He's just presenting things that create a seed of doubt in her. 
and and Adam, uh, I'm sure that they were both culpable, even though the conversation initially is recorded with Eve, that they were both kind of like, oh, did he? Hmm, I don't know. And so that process led to them making some pretty poor choices as a result of that. They didn't go back and talk to God about it. And they didn't try to find out, clarify, well, help me out here. I've been presented this other view that we might just become like you. And I kind of like that idea. <laughs> and why is that a bad thing? Yeah. Um, and he gave them opportunity, didn't he, to yeah. do that? Because he, he came and met them. And yeah, they just hid away rather than actually facing him with their, with their doubts and questions. Yeah. And then it's just it just crops up over and over and over again. I don't. I mean, just off the top of my head, I was just thinking about it earlier. You know, just the story of Abram and Sarah, uh, Sarai before they became Abraham and Sarah. You know, when the angels came to visit them and said that you're going to have a son who will be the in, uh, the inheritance of a, a great kingdom will come come from you, a great a nation of people. And I'm like, how can that be? We're well past childbearing age. Look, God, that's just ridiculous. And even Sarah even laughed. Um, and and then, you know, even once the angels had gone, they tried to take matters into their own hand and like, look, this isn't really working out the way we thought it would. There's no child yet. It's been a while. Maybe God was mistaken. Let's just try this other approach. Maybe you take my you know, handmade um, Hagar's uh, as your concubine, and you have a child by her, and we'll call that our son. And of course, that's how Ishmael came about. Uh, but God was faithful, and he did carry it through. So th they had experienced doubt. And, you know, their doubts are actually echoed again. Like in the New Testament, you see with um, Zechariah and Elizabeth in the early uh, chapters of Luke, where they're talking about um, the angels have come to them to announce that they would have a son who would call John, um, who would call all the nations um, back to repentance. And they have almost the same response. Even though they're very familiar with the story of Abraham and Sarah, they have almost exactly the same response. How can this be? We're well past childbearing age. And for his doubt, you know, Zechariah gets to shut up and not talk for the mm -hmm. next nine months or so until the child is born. Yeah. Um, and those are just, you know, just some of the many, many historical accounts that we can see. People asked questions and people needed answers and they were looking for those. And, you know, Gideon throughout this place to test God and other people have, you know, contrived various ways of trying to determine what is true. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jonathan and, Dave, uh, uh, Jonathan and his shield bearer were in a battle and they're like, well, I don't know if God is for us or not, but let's go try this. And if this happens, well, we'll know God is for us. And if it doesn't, it won't. They didn't have complete certainty about what God wanted out of that. It seems to be a thing about our human nature, our fallen human nature, that we just, you know, we, we can forget what God has, has done, basically, which I think is why the Lord, you know, created the Bible basically because we need those stories to go back over and, and just look at how he does work in that and how human beings are human and they do doubt but how he takes them through those journeys um, and so would you think that looking back on what God has actually done for you in your life is one of is a powerful way to start to sort of pull back on the doubts that you have because we can as humans forget the things that have gone before that we've gone through yeah 
Yeah, I, I think we do exactly what the Israelites did. Mm -hmm. Something amazing happens. We are rescued or something profoundly transformative happens. Um, and it's, it's like we're on a, a mountaintop for a while and we're just like, God, you're amazing. But it doesn't take us long before like the, the half-life on that starts to wear off and we be feeling less and less of that um, initial sense of joy. And we're like, yeah, but that was a while ago. What have you done for me lately, God? Yeah. Um, and so people go through that. And so I found like learning that history that, that not only did the nation have that journey, but many of the heroes of the faith experience doubt and they work through it and they came out stronger as a result of working through it. Um, and there are like two specific examples from the New Testament that I think that are really useful to look at in terms of understanding how Jesus specifically dealt with doubt. Uh, because you get to see that more indirectly, you know, with God, often there's a level of indirection where it's hard to read all the signs mm. and to hear what is God try, trying to clearly communicate there. But we have at least two encounters that uh, I think Jesus gives us through his own words some examples about what to do when um, people are doubting. Uh, the first of those that come to mind was John the Baptist himself. You know, once these two are adults and in their ministry, um, John is convinced of the one who will come after him is even greater than him. And when Jesus appears on the scene, he's, he says, this is him. You guys should stop following me. You should go follow him because he's the one. He's the one that I've been telling you all about. And he was absolutely convinced. And he was no doubt probably on a mountaintop because of seeing all these people come to repentance and faith and, and, and then some of his own followers choosing to follow Jesus. But then years later, when he gets arrested for having said some very uncomfortable things about you know, King Herod and his wife, mm -hmm. he gets thrown in prison. And we don't know exactly what all that process was like, but if you can imagine the thought process of going from, I've been seeing God do amazing things, but now I'm sitting in a dirty prison um, waiting for who knows what fate awaits me yeah and in that you know what we do have recorded is that at some point in time john sent his followers the ones who were, some of the followers who were still with him to go find jesus and they ask him a very pointed question they says are you the one you know that john is starting out of a question the very thing that he told others was true and now he's not sure but when you look at how Jesus responded to that, I think it's really helpful and instructive in some ways um, because he didn't actually answer John's original question. He didn't answer it directly by saying, yes, I'm the one. What he instead does is give I think, two really profound pieces of evidence. Um, the first is the more obvious one because he quotes back to, um, to the, well, he tells his those followers that go back and tell John what you're seeing here, that the, the deaf are hearing again, that the blind are regaining sight, and that um, you know, captives are being set free. And so there is a sense of miracles that are affirming that he is the one, and he knows that that will be convincing to John, but he also knows that it will be a, a compelling piece of evidence because of the the context of the quote that he's reciting from, because he's actually 
calling back to a prophecy from Isaiah who said that the one who was to come would do these very things. That he would be setting captives free, he would be um, uh, giving sight to the blind, and he would be giving hearing to the, the deaf. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he's given him two pieces of evidence and then sent them on their way. And he didn't, so I think one thing that was really helpful to me about looking at that was like, he doesn't force feed John the answer. He gives John the evidence and lets him work it out, you know? And, um, and that, that says to me that I probably need to rethink some of my approaches when somebody asks a question and I just think, oh, if I just give them the answer, well, that'll, that'll solve it, right? No, they need to do the work of, of working through it and coming to that conclusion on their own. So let me just give them the best evidence and let them work through it. Mm. So it's almost um, like a, a coaching conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we don't look at it as that. We look at it, uh, I don't know what, you know, we typically read out of that, but we, I guess we just see that here's a guy who's suffering and he doubted. Mm. And yeah, um, yeah but, but, but Jesus in that episode says to his own followers, he says, uh, there has been no one greater than John the Baptist. And after all that's transpired, there has been no one greater than John the Baptist. Of course, he goes on to clarify that anyone who enters the kingdom of heaven is even greater than that. Um, but he's saying on this, in this earthly life, John is the man. John had doubts, by the way, and you just witnessed them. But he's still the man. He's still the one you can trust. He's still, um, you know, he'll, he'll work through this. Because the human condition is that we do feel pain quite deeply and profoundly. And so I guess you can understand why people do have doubts, even when they have been on those mountaintop moments where everything's been so fabulous. And, you know, there's almost a feeling sometimes in people where they've given so much of themselves, but they've, they've seen God's blessing and then suddenly mm -hmm. it's gone. And, um, yeah, just that pain that just causes that doubt to rise up is quite hard to, to get over sometimes. And I think if we just acknowledge that, that's what I'm getting from you, is first of all just acknowledging that in people or even in yourself that that's yes. part of who we are as humans. It's not, nothing unusual, um, but it's how we deal with that doubt in the end. Yeah, and in, in our own suffering, we tend to get very uh, tunnel vision, and we, we only see our own situation. And the question that most often I hear expressed out of that is, is God, why are you doing this to me? Yeah. Like God intentionally sought you out and chose to do something bad to you to make you feel this way. Well, I think that's very, very far from the show. It's possible. We know that sometimes God punishes sin, but, but equally possible, and we have plenty of evidence throughout the Bible, that the other things happened that were not the fault of the people that they happened to. Jesus also recites the story about the, when the Tower of Siloam fell on the group of people, or when um, some people were killed in the temple. Was it because of their sin? No. You know, it was circumstances outside of themselves. And so we forget to sometimes ask that question. When we ask God, why are you doing this to me? Well, hang on a second. Maybe this was the result of somebody else's poor choice that I'm suffering. Maybe it was a result of my own poor choice. That's really uncomfortable because then I have to deal with my own issues here that yeah. I made a mistake that has led to this suffering that I'm now experiencing. Yeah. Um, or sometimes we have to face the fact that we don't understand and the reasons are unknowable to us. And we won't have answers in this lifetime to many of those profound questions. They just happen. Yeah. 
there will be gaps. I mean, we're not going to have complete revelation this side of heaven. It's it's just not possible. Um, we live in a fallen world, and I, I for myself, I, I sort of focus on that side of things, that this is a fallen world. We are to expect bad things to happen. We're not going to always be insulated. There will be times where God will reach in and actually do miracles for us, but Generally, we're living in a fallen world where thing, bad things happen, and um, yeah, it's how we we can actually get our heads around that as well, yeah. and find God alongside us in that. Yeah, what was what was God's role in that? Mm-hmm. Was He the cause of it, or did He allow it? And, and and some people will argue that there's no real distinction between those, <laughs> whether He caused it or allow it. He's equally culpable, but I think there's a massive difference between the two, because for to name God as the cause of my of all the evil that happens in the world is to paint a picture of God that I don't think the rest of the Bible supports. No. But uh, and so on the other hand, we have to wrestle with what 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 is He trying to teach us in this moment? Yeah, um, no, yeah. and we have our own free will and choice. You, you, you know that one of the our often cited arguments when you're dealing with the problem of evil is that. Human beings cannot love without the choice to love. And if learning to love is one of the most profound, highest goals of us, we have to have a choice. And for that choice to be there and to be legitimate, we have to be able to choose to do the wrong thing. And the wrong thing has consequences. It breaks relationships. It hurts people. And they suffer. And many times we suffer, too, as a result of our our poor choices and that. Yeah. Oh, thank yeah. you. This has been a really interesting conversation um, and I, a really important one because it is something that people struggle with. And so, you know, I, I'm sure people will have got a lot out of um, what you've shared with us today. But before we end um, uh, the podcast, we'd really love to hear if you have any books that you'd like to recommend us. Is there something that you've read lately? Oh, gosh, I read so many and I have so many on the go. (laughs) Um, One I'm just reading through right now is um, uh, Tom Holland, you know, Mm -hmm. about the history of Christianity. And, you know, even though he's not a Christian per se, he's presenting plenty of evidence that Christianity has profoundly changed um, the world that we live in. And so much of what we take for granted in the West is grounded in Christian principles and probably wouldn't be present if Christianity had not, you know, if the birth of Christianity had not happened all those years ago and spread across the world. And so, is you know, his book Dominion? Is it Dominion or is there another one? Uh, that's not the one I'm currently reading. I should have had it here sitting here next to me. So <laughs> I'll find out from you and I'll, and I'll put it in our show notes. Yeah, but there's other ones that like just open up questions I'm still wrestling with on my own. Like there's one book on my bookshelf that I'm just starting to work through, Adam and the Genome, which is a perspective of um, a scientist and a theologian who take the approach uh, that evolution is true and here's why that's not a problem. Now, whether or not I agree with that, I I still want to be like hear their arguments and say, well, is there some information that I've been missing or is there, um, you know, something compelling about that argument? I want to better understand that perspective because honestly, I don't know biology well enough to make an argument one way or the other what, what, what biology says. Yeah. I have to trust other people who have. And it's really encouraging me to know that we have Christians who are in, 
you know, those sciences and working through them and still have faith in God, you know, like some of the even high profile ones like Francis Collins, you know, came to faith because of some of the, what he was seeing. Um, and uh, as an adult, he came to faith and he was able to work in this, the sciences he holds to an evolutionary view and that God is real. Is that possible? Some of us would say no. And some would say, well, yeah, I don't see a problem with that. So I just want to understand those questions mm -hmm. more. So I'm constantly wrestling with those. And I often will pick up books too that um, I'll read through that are actually, you know, almost diametrically opposed to what I view to, to believe, just to understand what is it people are really saying? Yeah, because sometimes yeah. we have an opinion that's very strong in ourselves, but we haven't actually really looked at the other side. And, and the side, like the evolution, um, you know, young earth, old earth um, yeah. debate, I've kind of sat on the fence on it because I, ha I've, I know a lot about the creation, you know, side of things, like it being a young earth, but I haven't really looked into the evolutionary thought yet. So I don't feel like I have a right to have an opinion. That's, yeah. that's true until yeah. I've actually gone through what the evidence is on that side because so many you know, I've, I've changed my mind about so many things over the last few years. So that's one of the areas that I'd really, and I know it's going to be a big one. So I'd be really interested to hear how you find the book that you're reading, that you've got on the shelf there, because um, yeah. it's a really um, interesting topic, particularly for Christians. Absolutely. Yeah, but that, that's part of what I would encourage people to do is find some, like when you're going to investigate a topic is to hear from some of those who have strongly held, well thought out perspective that is the opposite of what you believe and try to take it seriously as you can. You know, the temptation is just dismiss them, but these people have spent a lot of time studying and coming to their own conclusions and they genuinely believe this and they genuinely believe they have good facts. So can I wrestle through that process? Mm. And um, yeah, where will it lead me? Uh, is, is that a fear? Is that a fear that, you know, I, I have this strong held belief, but if I go into there, I might find out something that's going to change that belief and that might shake my faith? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like one of the things I learned from Mike Lycona was he was writing the book that became his kind of like, um, you know, his splash into the apologetic scene. It was the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, he talked about, he's talked about it numerous occasions and I've sat with him and talked about it, but he's also recorded some of these videos and you can watch some of them on his own process of saying, if I'm going to treat this as a historian, I have to genuinely examine the evidence and do it with as little uh, presumptions as I can to try to arrive at it. And that process was wrecking to him. Many times he struggled with really just vast doubts uh, and he'll, he'll acknowledge that. But in the end, when he put the whole picture together, he says, you know, you can, you can provide arguments that against this view of why the res how the resurrection happened or this view or this view, but there is no one response that is more compelling than the idea that the resurrection really happened. And when you come to that conclusion, you know, it just kind of, you refine that faith sometimes that you were struggling with is there's, there's something firm I can ground it on here. It's not just my wishful thinking. Yeah. And it's like you said earlier about the narrow vision that we have when we are in that, in that state of doubt. It's, um, yeah, quite... It, yeah. And I know a lot of young people don't... I, I, I might date myself here, but don't read <laughs> a lot of books. <laughs> I'm thinking of like Rowan and a few he others. Listens to uh, him. 
He listens to yeah. them. Yeah. So people take in stuff in, in that format. So there's lots of good audio books as well as, you know, podcasts like this one, of course. Yes. But there are many other podcasts out there that are just great. Yeah. People exploring hard questions. And we need to be able to hear the, those perspectives because they help shape who we are. And what a better time if you are going to struggle with doubts than now where everything is, as you say, there's so much information on the internet and yeah. we just have to click a button or tap, a, you know, tap our phones and we, can, we actually have access to get those questions answered really well, which is such a blessing. So, yeah. yeah. So thank you so much, Bruce. Before you go, I'd really love if you could just share a little bit of encouragement, a word of encouragement to our listeners and watchers. Well, I think, that, yeah, thanks. The, <laughs> the thing that I, I think is that I want to say to you is if you're doubting, that's okay. Doubt is not the problem. It's staying stuck in doubts. How are you going to move beyond this doubt? And are you going to do it in a, um, a reasonable way? Or are you going to just go with your initial gut reaction? Um, so it's okay to, to have those doubts. I remember Sean McDowell, when he was here, was telling a story about when he went to his father, Josh McDowell. Both of these two are well-known apologists in the American scene. And he, and he said to his father, he says, Dad, I'm really starting to doubt all this stuff. And Josh said to him, good. Like, not the typical response you expect. But he said to him, good, because that means you're going to now dig through the evidence and you're going to come to your own understanding and you're going to be so much better off for it. And that's been my experience is that all these questions that, that once upon a time put me off really badly, now I hear them and I'm like, oh, yeah, that." There might be that that you're thinking about, but do you know about this? There's some other views out there that have been well thought out from Christian perspective. And we can wrestle through hearing both sides. We don't have to be afraid of hearing the other side. We don't have to be afraid in our churches of letting our children explore doubt. We need to make our churches be a safe place for doubt to be explored. And maybe that'll lead to some people going through a deconstruction phase, but as a result of that, when they reconstruct, assuming they do reconstruct a, a Christian faith, many, most of them do, um, that it'll be a far firmer foundation that they're standing on than what they began with. And so I'm okay with, let's remove some of that, you know, uh, shaky foundation and let's build a much firmer one in its place. Engage those doubts. Um, continue to, yeah, trust Jesus in, in the process of revealing to you your own weaknesses and, and struggles and, and some of the reasons for why you're going through this, but then also trust that what he's done for you in the past, he will do again, and that he can lead you into a better place Excellent of comfort. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Thank you. That's a great encouragement, and I'm sure that's going to help a lot of people. And what you're really saying is that doubt actually is, can sometimes be a good thing. For us. I believe it's necessary. Yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for being with us, Bruce. Yeah, thank you very much for having me, Michelle. Kakite. Kakite. We really hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thinking Matters is a donor supported organization, so please support us so we can continue to make them. Go to support.thinkingmatters.org.nz and while you're there, why not check out our other resources and upcoming events so that you can continue to defend the faith, navigate culture and reach people. 
khaki tape.